Good learning listeners, welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata, where we bridge the gap between the scientific literature and teaching practices in the classroom. I'm your host, Robert, and I'm joined here by your other host. Yeah, Joseph, uh, also known as the main host of the show. Uh, uh, that by name, they're talking about how he's letting his hair grow out a lot, I think, but, um, that's another topic. I actually, I actually just cut my hair, to be honest. You know, I let it grow out all summer long. Uh, I also, you know, stopped shaving quite a bit. Um, and uh, I looked quite rough by the time it was the week before school started. And I was working over the summer in a group home. And uh, I think I probably shocked my colleagues because uh, I showed up at the last week of the summer and, you know, freshly shaven a haircut. And they probably didn't recognize me. No, I didn't recognize you either. Um, you started out looking a lot like um, Shaggy from uh, Shaggy and Scooby. But now with the fresh cut, I guess you're looking more like Scooby. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting good at this mean thing, huh? You're, you've always been good at the mean thing. You've just pretended on the podcast that you're nice. So as soon yeah. as I, as soon as we turn off, you know, he starts swearing at me and, you know... Is screaming at me, profanities. He's just, he's very personal attacks. Very personal attacks. Absolutely no one, but even a new, brand new listener does not believe that at all. Um, especially if they heard the last episode. Didn't you swear or, last episode, Robert? No, that, that was definitely you. Don't even I think I think you're making that up. My, my grandmother listens to this podcast. Don't make a lot. <laughs> oh, your grandma, eh? <laughs> is that is that a real story or is that just made up for the the intro? No, I just I don't make anything up for the intro. You you don't? No. Huh. I thought you made up most of the things you said on this podcast. Like okay, on the spot. There you go again. Well what I will say is that what I do do, um do do what if that's proper grammar or not. <laughs> uh, well it is a what, term for fecal matter. What I am doing currently at the moment is I'm honoring you, yes, honoring you, by, you know, writing the forward for your book that we are going to publish very soon. Uh, and I'm taking my time. I know you like to rush things, but I'm taking my time because, you know, believe it or not, I'm really trying to write a forward that I feel like brings the level of uh, respect and gravitas um, to how much work you've actually put into this book. Um, I think you've really encapsulated a lot of the ideas that we've been working on for a very long time in PNG. And um, you started, you know, one article at a time. And now you're starting to compile that. And I, ju I just want to do something that um, does justice towards that. Yeah, you know, on that, on that subject, I will say a lot of the content that is going to be in the book um, is covered in our podcast. Uh, in fact, I don't know if there's, there's very little that I haven't talked about on the podcast that's made it into the book. And a large amount of the content has made it into articles on our website. Um, in fact, I'm sure that you could get 90% of the information if you uh, listen to our book, or sorry, listen to our podcast and just went to our website and read our articles for free. Um, the point of the book is not to to really extend deeply further the knowledge of the, the listener um, if they've been come, listening to the podcast since episode one all the way through. In fact, 
if they have been, I'd almost recommend they don't buy her book. Don't don't recommend that. First rule of business: Do not recommend people away from your product. Okay. Well, I I will say where, who I intend the book for though. Right. Um, the book the book is there if you're the type of person who would rather read something hard copy than listen to all our episodes and scroll through articles online. The book is there. Also, if you you know haven't listened to all of our content and you know like that that medium of having a book again or and it's also there i think if you know a teacher or have a friend who is interested in this topic who you you want to expose them more to our material you know i mean it, it can be a possible gift um i i am going to be trying to to publish the book um professionally um you know and with that comes marketing too so it might be something that helps to to boost our podcast hopefully you know knock on wood um and uh it might be you know obviously a potential source of revenue for us um but at the same time um i i don't want to give the the listeners the idea that the book is going to be radically new content from what they've heard in the podcast because i don't want to mislead the the listener and get them all excited to go out and buy the book and then have them disappointed that in, in the thinking that Hey, he talked about this in episode one of our podcast, you know, because, right. you know, I will say episode one of our podcast is is for the most part, chapter one of the book. <laughs> right. Uh, but that that's because in my mind, that was the most fundamental thing I wanted to get across to our listener of what the PNG mission is. And uh, obviously, with my book, the, the first chapter is going over, you know, sort of our mission statement. Yeah. And, and again, a part of our mission statement, a part of why are we doing this thing that's, you know, um, taking so much of our time, but has been so rewarding at the same, at the same time, um, is openness, is candidness. We're actually trying to give all this information away. There's, there's really not much that we're secretive about at all. Um, there's a few things that we look at as maybe being secret sauce, um, that we're, we're still formulating, but for the most part, everything is open. You can listen to the podcast and find it. So, and that's literally a part of our brand, what we're trying to do. And, you know, and I, I feel like we've been pretty successful so far and the book is just an addition towards that effort. So like you said, if, if you're someone that would rather have it in hard copy, it'd be really good or to be able to give it to someone else. And for those of you, those really unique unicorn uh, listeners, that have listened to every episode and want the book and maybe even want to be more involved with, um, you, you know, with the whole PNG experience. Um, feel free to write a comment on our Facebook, um, about your experience with the podcast. Um, your experience with in the classroom with, uh, the content of PNG. And we might, Look for some of the um, the best ones. Make let us know how long you've been listening, and we'll try to pick some of our most avid listeners. And we might include their comments um, in the promotional material for the book, or maybe maybe even like at the end of the book, we can put some stuff that's just not quite testimonials, but just you know the voice of some of our supporters. Uh, I think that'd be really cool. What do you think? That's a really cool idea. I love that idea. I really appreciate that idea. Um, 
Yeah, I, I will say as a final note, I don't want to say that there's nothing in the book that is, you know, wholly unique. There's definitely some content in the book that I haven't previously shared on the podcast. And there's definitely um, some chapters of uh, the book that hasn't haven't made it up onto our website. Um, definitely a lot of chapters of the book have been just published as articles on our website. But a lot of it's also been, um, what's the word I'm looking for, extended upon within the book format and added to. Um, there's a little bit more anecdotal information in there in terms of how I see this working out in my own experience. Um, and I'm actually really excited because recently John Hattie has um, agreed to let me use some of his work within the book, which um, anyone who knows his podcast knows I'm a big fan of John Hattie. <laughs> Anyways, we should really get started on this podcast. We've been talking about my book forever here. Um, podcast. I almost forgot about a podcast. Yeah, like we're we're nine minutes in. And we haven't even touched on the topic. So I'm going to go ahead and end this um, narcissism right here and start to talk about the the C tier of intervention. So this is the continuation of the our analysis of meta, math interventions according to meta-analysis research. And we've already covered sort of our A tier and our B tier. So those were the interventions that had the highest results according to meta-analysis. And now we're going to look at our sort of our C tier. Um, I think some of these could still be effectively used within a classroom so long as they don't take up a lot of your time. And this is something we talked about in previous podcasts. I don't want to spend forever on it. But, you know, if something is a, a low-yield intervention but still has consistent results and doesn't use up a lot of your time, it can still be very beneficial to use. But anything on this list, if you think, oh, that would take me forever to use or I don't feel comfortable using that or I don't think I can execute that correctly, I would not even bother. I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't even think about it. Um, and I think it's value, still valuable to look at within that context. So the, the first one on our list is visual representatives, um, which they're specifically meaning as charts. But I would sort of put them in math manipulatives in the same category. And this has um, an effect size of 0.46, um, which puts it right within the average um, study effect size, according to John Hattie, and lower than the average effect size within our, our list. Um, I would say that this is sort of within, we talked about this before, the average education study has an effect size of 0.4, in part because of the file drawer problem, as Dylan William put it to us. Um, people don't publish the results sometimes if the results aren't significant enough. Um, but because when it, whatever you use in the classroom, that's something else you're not using because you have limited time. Um, so this is these are things that are are well within that average realm where they're almost within that sort of um, placebo effect size within the realm of education, at least, I would say. Um, because in part, whenever someone presents a controlled plan for how to teach, it almost always goes better than the, the quote-unquote control group, which doesn't have a plan. Um, so... Visual representatives and manipulatives is a super popular tool to use um, with math interventions. I would say a lot of people would tell you this is the silver bullet of education for math. Like, oh, yeah, you're struggling with math? Oh, you just need manipulatives. Manipulatives will solve that problem for you. And I, I think this research clearly shows that, no, it won't. Um, manipulatives can be useful. They can be helpful. And I think Robert, who's far more of an expert in math instruction than I am, could probably tell you some very specific instances where he would advocate for the use of manipulatives. But I, I don't think that there's any proof that just adding manipulatives to your program is going to significantly improve it. Robert? 
No, I definitely agree with that. And I think that all the research really bears that out. Um, I feel that manipulatives is one of those things that it's more of a zombie practice. And I guess it doesn't hurt too much. Uh, it probably hurts more um, inexperienced teachers because it's hyped so much that inexperienced teachers will lean on it and spend a lot of time using it. And that's when it can become detrimental. But it's like a, it's like a zombie tactic because it comes back as being the silver bullet, I would say, like, you know, at least a couple times a decade. Yeah. And I, I, I believe really what it is, it's, it's because of its performative nature. When a parent comes into a classroom and sees a ton of well-organized manipulatives and they see a bunch of students, you know, playing around with them and using them and everything looks kind of peaceful at that moment this looks like evidence of learning to to someone that is a novice um so because of that performative quality i think that's why it keeps a re-emerging because anytime there's an issue with uh how well we are doing in math instruction that's when you see the manipulatives come out. And that's really, I think, to to reassure, reassure people that have um, no, no way of um, determining the value of the education happening at that time. Um, yeah, but I would say it doesn't mean that manipulatives are, are necessarily bad, because I would say in an experienced teacher's hand, as we've seen, it is a, a moderate... Uh, a moderate, like it, it's above the average. So, um, in an experience in your hand where there's not too much time spent in taking away from other more productive methods and strategies, it can be useful. And I would also say, and this is really, really important, not all manipulatives have been created equal. I will say, in my time, I found that learning how to make visual representations almost visual representation systems by drawing um, to help explain and to help as an aid on tests for students is probably the most powerful visual representation or manipulative type um, strategy that one can use. When, when you can draw a small grid and figure out from there how to multiply, divide, subtract, or add any fraction and to compare fractions very easily by using a, a drawn grid that you can draw in like 10 seconds. That is probably the most powerful tool that a student can use on a test to show a great deal of success. And there's a lot of other visual representations you can teach students how to draw um, that will surpass any any manipulative that can only be used during practice. Uh, because not in every setting where you're going to be tested are you going to be allowed to have fraction rods or, um, you know, grid blocks and, and 10 base blocks and all that. So, yeah, that's, that, I think that was, is what I would say about manipulatives. Yeah, that was really interesting. I think you should make a YouTube video about what you were talking about with the grids because I, I haven't seen that specific um, thing you're discussing. 
maybe you just mean like drawing a fraction on a grid. Um, but I still think it would be a cool YouTube video. Um, oh, wow, my brain just froze for a second and I lost my train of thought. Um, he's not simply just drawing a, a, a fraction on a grid. It's more like there's a way to manipulate uh, visual grids of, um, of fractions to give you an answer. It's, it's almost... It's like a visual representation of writing, you know, one half divided by one quarter. There's a way of doing it visually that students can learn pretty quickly. Um, that makes the answer the answer visual uh, visual to them, and it's easier to see because it's not just numbers when there's a discrepancy. So it's easier for them to check their answer. Yeah, you know. I, I also think sometimes there's an advantage to not using manipulatives. And I'll, I'll give you a specific example. I was was looking at patterning today. I was was looking at the way someone online was teaching patterning using actually grids of all things um, to, to draw out how patterns can change. And then uh, they're using this to teach students how to solve a t-table problem or an algebra problem um, to solve for the formula. And... I, I couldn't I couldn't help but think this is a way more complicated way of doing it than the simple quick procedural way I teach my students to do it on a piece of paper because my 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 formula for doing it you know just involves um, subtracting the difference between the two values to find out how much um, the number is being multiplied by and then you go to the zero variable and then um, subtract the difference there to see how much it's being added or subtracted from um that takes about two seconds once a student figures that out it takes them about two seconds to solve any t-table chart but if the students have to draw out every pattern on a grid paper oh my god that would take forever and i actually don't even think i think it's, it can be useful to show them once or twice just to show them like the concrete idea behind it but at the same time i think it's a more confusing way of teaching it definitely can be and i would definitely never advise someone that is not like a of a very high confidence level when it comes to math to do that because also even if you were teaching it pretty effectively and you had a fair understanding of what you were doing more likely you're probably teaching them things that will have to be untaught if any of those students have to go on to any higher form of math because actually there's something um, to do with positions where certain components in your equation, the blocks should be in a certain position. Like there's a, a reference to the position where the block should go. And if you're just teaching them without that understanding and putting the blocks more in a random way, because you're just counting the blocks, um, that's something they're going to have to unlearn later on if they ever do go on to more advanced level math. Yeah, that's something I know nothing about. And admittedly, and so this is in part because I never use manipulatives. Um, I, I'm a big believer in teaching students the easiest way to do something. If if there is a value, a specific value of using manipulatives to show students the conceptual understanding of what's going on, go for it. And in fact, I've where I've used manipulatives the most personally is with primary students to teach them multiplication. So getting them to group blocks together and then showing them that this is multiplying. That, that's the area where I probably use the most uh, manipulatives. And even uh, adding and subtracting in like grade one, I've definitely used manipulatives quite a bit. But uh, 
grade seven, I might use manipulatives like two days in an entire school year. <laughs> it's very difficult to use with them because there's a stigma behind it that these manipulatives are for the younger grades. Yeah. Um, but what I would I would add an asterisk to that because there is a, a requirement to be able to um, convert equations or even t tables into visual representations. Yeah. So I wouldn't necessarily say that means to use manipulatives, but they do have to be able to draw um, what the manipulatives would show. So they need to be able to draw those blocks in the pattern system. But again, that's often taught not very well because there's no attention to the positions that that the block should be in. Well, we've spent 10 minutes on manipulatives alone. So I, I kind of want to uh, move on to the next one because this is actually a topic we've talked about in the podcast quite a few times too, I will say. Yeah. So the next one on our list is interspersal. Uh, this is an interesting one. I was saying that I'd never heard of it previously to doing this meta-analysis research. It has an impact size of 0 0.40. Um, and again, it's completely average. And if you haven't been able to figure it out, we're sort of looking at our very average um, factors on, on this list today. Um, so interspersal um, simply refers to mixing hard and easy questions. So when you give students assignments or tests, having a variety of levels of difficulty within the assignment of the test. I think this works, I, and I, I believe that it should be scaffolded. Sort of like we had earlier, we talked about scaffold examples as a high-yield strategy. We go from the easiest example to the hardest example. I would think it would make a lot of sense if you went from easiest to hardest on a question or a set of questions. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, I won't go into how to do it. I think there's a thousand different ways you could do this. Um, yeah. But... I think one advantage is it can provide that scaffolding built in. And I think sometimes if you actually structure a question in a really scaffolded way, it can actually help to promote an understanding. Uh, I'll give an example. I was actually writing a math test today for our online classroom. And um, we I was looking at showing students powers of 10. So what happens if I multiply a decimal by 10? What happens if I multiply a decimal by 100? by a thousand, by 10,000, by a hundred thousand. And then, so I, I put all those questions in order of the number of zeros. So, and I, I used the same number on each one or decimal number on each one. So the answer was going up basically by one place value each time. I, I think that that question is getting slightly harder each time. Um, and it's, it, there's a real clear scaffolding. Um, but I think there's another thing, a value to interspersal in that it can, um, make it slightly more motivating for the student. You know, if it's all hard or all easy, I think that can be problematic in the sense that the kid can get bored or overly frustrated. So I, I think it makes sense. I don't know, I, I will say, this is an intervention where I think it just, it's, a, it's such an easy thing to do. If you're already writing a math test or you're already assigning math questions, why not change it up a little? Because there, there does seem to be some benefit to doing this, even if that benefit is not significant. Yeah, I would say it's definitely something interesting. Um, it sounds like they, they want, I'm not sure if they, they want you to change the, the degree of difficulty in a more random way, but um, I would say what I typically do is I use graduated difficulty, so it goes up in increasing difficulty. I guess you could describe that as scaffolding. Um, but the funny thing is I always start off with the hardest question first. Really? The hardest one. 
I usually, particularly when I'm trying to sew something either um, completely procedural or completely conceptual. Uh, I don't, I don't do that when it's kind of mixed, but, uh, and often I, I do something that's probably counterintuitive to a lot of other um, teachers, uh, particularly once teaching math. But I think that once you get to a certain level of competency in teaching math, sometimes there's certain rules that you can break. So I typically start off with a question that I, I particularly in, in um, algebra, I start off with a question that I call the beast. And it's intentional to make this, to love this question as being tremendously difficult. And I actually give them, sometimes I give them an analysis of like, if you're totally comfortable with this question, where you might be placed in terms of a grade. Like, um, if this is grade seven, this might be a typical everyday question that you might actually see in more of a grade nine class. Um, and I call, I call it the beast. And I show them how to do it. And it's, it's kind of, I do it in a way where it's kind of a challenge. It's like, wow, okay, this is just like tremendously difficult, but the teacher just showed me how to do it really quick. And then I drop down to the easier questions after that, going up, graduating. And what I find doing that is that these question becomes this motivation going forward. They all understand that we're on a journey. We all might be in different places on that journey. But we're all moving in the same direction towards an end goal to be able to demonstrate something that I think I could actually take home and show my parents and they would be amazed that I'd be able to do it. They often the kids pine about when I finally take down the beast on my own, I'm gonna take that question home and I'm gonna try to dare my parents to do it. And then I'm gonna laugh at them when they can't do it, and then I'm gonna show them how easy it is. So I feel like it, it buys. In, it seems like it breaks the rule, but it actually buys into one of the the principles in in P and G, where it's about um, clarity, clarity of expectations, and letting the kids see the beginning. I mean, the end from the beginning. They get to see an end point, and in fact, I usually show them a question that might be a grade up or two that still uses all the same procedures and techniques that I'm going to have to show them that are in their grade level. And um, I don't know, that's something that I've, I've developed over time. But I wouldn't say that would be something that you would do if you're not as competent in teaching math or you're a new teacher because you can easily trigger math anxiety um, within students and and have the, have, um, the opposite effect where students then feel paralyzed because they feel like, I'm going to have to be able to do this type of a question because you didn't, you didn't initiate it or, or um, introduce it properly. Yeah, I, I will have to, I'll have to say it's, it's an interesting point. And I, I'm really a big believer in clarity of expectations. It's one of my favorite scientific principles that we have. It's one I've been thinking about a lot of lately randomly um, in part because uh, my number one editor, my wife, has asked me to expand on this topic in the book I've been writing. <laughs> but um, I will say in terms of interspersal, I, it's not one I've ever really personally thought about much in the past. It's not one I've tried, but I think it's something I'll try to think about in the future, just because as I pointed out earlier, I don't think it costs anything to use. And I, I think there's a, a solid chance it'll have a benefit. So.
Um, I'm going to move on to the next one on our list, and that is self-explanation. This is kind of a weird one. So this is the idea that the students explain to themselves how to do the math as they do it. So, for example, if they were doing long division, they would talk themselves orally out loud through the steps of long division. Now, I would imagine this could make for a very loud um, classroom during a math class if everyone was doing it. Um, but again, this costs you nothing. This isn't anything you're doing. It's just something extra the students are doing as they're doing their work. Um, and it has an effect size of 0.35. You know, um, I, I, I mistakenly in the past have, have compared effect sizes to percentages, and I, I've corrected the record on that. They're not. But they're, they are they can be similar uh, because it's the difference, the mean effect divided by the deviation. So it's reasonable to say that for the most part, the actual effect of an effect size is larger than the effect size itself because we're, we're dividing it by the deviation. Um, so I, I would say that it's reasonable to say that you might see a 30% increase in your classroom math results just by having your students do this. I, for, you know, for something that costs you absolutely nothing to do, I, I don't know. I think it's worth it. It's not one I've ever tried before. I'd like to experiment with it. Um, and it, it might be some... The funny thing is, is how do you sell this to the kids? Because on the one end, you don't want to oversell it because it's not something that's going to be super like powerful. Um, but the other hand, if you undersell it, you risk creating the self-fulfilling prophecy of letting the kids not believe in it. And if the kids don't believe in it, it's not going to help. So you gotta you gotta sell it just enough that the kids are willing to to give it a real shot, but not so much that you're you know being ridiculous. So uh, because I don't think it's something kids have to do. Like I would never force a kid to do this. I'd never be like, hey, you, you're not talking as you do your math. Start talking. <laughs> are you sure that sounds just like you? It does, doesn't it? No, no, I wouldn't. I would never do that. So at the same time, I might be like, hey, you're struggling with this. It's a long procedural thing. Why don't you try this technique? Um, there's research showing that it, it helps. I think that would be a good way of approaching it. Yeah, I, I would agree. The, the only thing I'd be concerned about is because it, I, I think someone using this can definitely fit it in without wasting any extra time that they weren't already going to use for practicing. Um, and like you said, it doesn't cost anything. So that, that's all good. I The only thing I would look at when I would implement it, which I've never implemented this strategy before, is how does it affect students that have math anxiety? How does it affect students that have performance anxiety? Um, how is it going to affect some of the students that really struggle with math or have a learning disability? I, I, I would just look to see how it affects their behavior. Um, because I, I think this would be definitely something that you have to have very good um, classroom management um, already going on before you implement this and you have to have a very good handle on being able to differentiate when necessary and be sensitive to how kids um, respond to this um, but yeah I, I think there's a lot of elements in it that I can see why it would be beneficial um, all the studies on learning um, say that if you talk while you're learning through the steps to yourself, that self-talk, whether that be completely mental in your head or whether it's auditory 
it really, really impacts um, how quickly you learn something and how and how quickly it sticks. So I can see how that would be super beneficial. And something else that I can see in this, this strategy is that it might extend uh, the potential teaching time. So if I taught a lesson in 10 minutes and then the students begin practicing, but every student is kind of talking out the procedure to themselves, even students that didn't hear my lesson might be able to listen to a student that they know um, listens to the lesson and has a high level of competence um, and hear the lesson over and over and over again. So I can see how that parroting that it could be really advantageous. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. You know, one thing I will say that I could see teachers hearing about the strategy and think, I will create a process for this, like a specific way they're going to do it. You know, number talks is an interesting strategy. I think it has, I think I've been too hard on it in the past, actually. I've reformed my opinion a little bit on it. Um, and this is reflected in my book because my chapter on number talks is quite a bit softer than my article on number talks. Um, but at this, at the same time, I feel like it's so specific in the procedural way it's meant to be implemented. And I think some of that's marketing, you right. know, and I, I meant to say this earlier when we were talking about uh, manipulatives in a previous episode, I think part of why manipulatives are so popular is it's something easy to market and sell. Uh, I would be very dubious of any process um, where someone's like, this is the specific way you are going to self talk through the procedure. Um, and I, I wouldn't want it to teach kids to be like, all right, I have my flow chart up on the classroom. You're all going to follow the, the specific way you say it here. Um, not because that, that I don't think that could work. In fact, I think it could work and it might even potentially be beneficial, but I think the level of like authoritarianism behind that in the intrant or in the, um, implicit curriculum. And I think the level of like effort that you would have to go through both with yourself and with like, you know, really drilling the kids with that wouldn't be worth the effect size that this strategy has. Like I wouldn't like you, you don't want to like do a whole lesson plan around something that has an effect size of 0.35. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so I would say that I do something, you know, a little bit similar to this. Um, I do something towards the middle of the year when I have a homeroom class where I get the students to teach a lesson. So after they've seen how I teach lessons, I, I get each student in the class to teach a lesson. And there's a reward for the whole class when the, teacher, when the student teaches a lesson because for that 10-minute lesson or that 15-minute lesson, they are the teacher and they get like most of the rights of the teacher. I don't obviously get veto power, but... Huh. There's the, they have those rights, and for that reason, they have to give the students have to give them the same respect that they would give me. And you might say, "Oh, well, um, I think students are going to use that as a chance to, to you know, make a scene and do." But actually, the students all buy into it because they understand. Not only does that student have the the power to, uh, you know, uh, have out consequences potentially that are fair uh, to correct students. Uh, potentially, they also have the power to, to give out um, prizes. So I say, if you give the student respect and you respect them as if they're a teacher and you let them do their lesson, at the end of the lesson, they'll be able to give the whole class a prize. And as long as the, the prize is reasonable, 
I'll agree to it, and then you have a product. So I find that the, t- the, the kids buy in, and they start getting almost, a, I would say, throughout the student teaching lesson, it's definitely metacognition. And they're definitely talking themselves through the steps and practicing for that lesson, they have to do that. So that's where I would say how this is related slightly to the strategy, or at least the part of the strategy that I think is the effective part. But also, I find the students feel as though once they buy into it, that the student can tell them certain things in their own language. And I actually see very innovative ways students come up with how to teach a lesson that I can borrow later on. And then I find that uh, the students begin to do something that I don't know if it's exactly metacognition, but they begin to emulate everything the student that's teaching does because they don't look at that student as being a teacher. So things that I do up, up, up on the board, they don't think to copy me exactly because they they look at me as being not what they are a student oh man i have a rule but if i write it on the board they're copying it no but i I don't mean like just copying something down i mean if they copied all my mannerisms the same language i use going through it the same way over and over and over again they would be able to do things way more efficiently and learn very quickly but they look at half of things i do as just being teacher stuff they don't look at it as being necessary for learning. But when they see a student doing that, they tend to mimic exactly what the student did in the exact same way. Because they look at the student, even though they have the power of the teacher, they look at, you know, this he's one of us or she's one of us. So if we do exactly what they're doing and say it the same way, the same speed, the same pace, that we'll be able to do exactly what they did because they're not a teacher, they're just a student. And that that's why... I, I adopted that on my third year of teaching, and I've, I've worked up to that every single year where I get my class, where everybody in the class um, teaches a lesson. And I usually try to get them to teach a lesson in whatever subject I find, that they tend to be the less motivated, the least motivated, and um, find it the least boring, uh, the most boring. Um, and I've always found it, I know that's anecdotal, always find that it improves um, all of the students um, in that subject. And then later on, it, it filters into the other subject. I think that's really interesting. Um, and it, it, I think it actually fits more into our, our narrative around peer tutoring, which is something we're going to discuss in our next episode quite in depth, I think. Um, but I think I think we've sort of talked this one out, and I'd like to get to our final intervention of our C tier. and And that is formative instruction um and it's funny to me because this is connected to formative assessment which has a lower effect size but i think this is this is one where i believe the effect size is not accurate in in terms of its value or does not not necessarily it's not accurate but i don't think it necessarily does a good job of reflecting the total value of formative instruction so formative instruction is obviously just the idea that it's instruction meant to um, scaffold up towards a, a specific goal or might be paired with formative assessment. Um, personally, I, I believe all good teaching needs formative instruction and assessment. I'm a huge fan of it. 
So it's it's right at the bottom of my list. And you know, right on the first episode, and I've said this before, I think research can be wrong. Um, but I think we should do our best to go with our uh to base our opinions off of research. And I think ninety-nine percent of the time I do do to that. Uh oh no, I said do do, and I made fun of you for saying that earlier. Um <laughs> But at the at the same time, uh, there's there's a couple of moments where I've looked at research and I'm like, nah, I don't buy it. Um, and I could be wrong. I could be entirely wrong. And it's against my personal philosophy of education. But in my my own anecdotal experience, um, I, it just really so purely doesn't match my experience that I, I have to, to question it. And I'm not saying that the this isn't a knock on the the researchers who've said this. I think there might be a problem in the execution of the research and how we came up to this this effect size. So 0.34 is a, a very moderate effect size. It's it's ranging towards the the low end of the spectrum. Um, it's almost a C tier in uh, itself. And and so I mean, statistically speaking, I think we should read this and say, well, this doesn't look worth it. But at the same time, I don't know how you teach a good unit without formative instruction or um, assessment. Like, obviously, you're, you should be building up to something. Um, obviously, the, the instruction should be scaffolded. Um, and this is a very core idea behind action research frameworks. And action research frameworks have shown extremely high effect sizes. For example, um, RTI is an action research framework. So RTI involves using formative instruction. You can't do RTI properly without having formative instruction. And RTI has an effect size of 1.44. It is the highest yielding um, effect size on language research. So I, I don't see how a formative instruction could be so low. But, uh, other than uh, there being a problem with how this was studied or being too low of a sample size to get an accurate picture. And I'll, if you want to talk about, give your thoughts, I'll actually look up the sample size just to, to look it up. Yeah, I would say that um, just to, to, to put a little more clarity on what I, what I feel that you're saying about um, looking at research, it's not necessarily that you're dismissing the research and you're also saying that, you know, it's better to go with the research because um, obviously research can be wrong. And most of the research, like 90% 90, 90 of the research we have now is probably not as accurate as it will be in, say, 10 years. And it just continues to get more and more accurate. And But research is a better way of going than using your gut. And I think we've said that enough so our listeners really understand where you're coming from. I also, I would say sometimes once you've really gotten used to looking at these studies and applying them in the class practically, you start to get the insight into how much of an impact execution plays in this. And I think anyone that's listened to our interview with John Hattie understands that Hattie would agree with that assessment that now that we're getting really good meta um, data from these meta-analysis, now it's time to start uh, taking these strategies and we're looking at how, what is the best way and in what context do these strategies work best and how to, how to 
execute them um, to their fullest potential. So I would say in all of that, you will find some strategies that seem like they clearly have all the components of what should be an effective strategy. And you might even have a lot of anecdotal success with that, but yet the research, you know, says it's moderate. Um, and sometimes you'll find the opposite. You'll see something that seems to break all the rules and what should be a good strategy. Uh, and yet it seems to be ranked a lot higher than you would expect. Um, and I just say, I think that's just a part of the, a part of the nature of research. What I will say specifically about uh, formative instruction is that I agree with you that I don't see how, um, how you can really get high level results, at least from a, a teaching perspective, from an approach based on the teacher as being the conduit to the learning process um, without using formative instruction. I would say if there's any discrepancy with this data, it's probably from one or two places. There might be too broad of a definition of formative instruction. And therefore, that might be why something like RTI, which I would say is really where formative instruction and collective self-efficacy kind of meet. So we know collective self-efficacy ranks really high and RTI ranks high. And we could say maybe that's mostly the, the self-efficacy, but I would also, having um, performed RTI um, for many years, would say that a, a lot of that actually comes from the formative instruction as well. Um, so I would say if, if you're looking at a very broad definition, that could include a lot of different teaching strategies, but just done under a system where you have an end goal, and you have a very incremental idea of how to get there. But if the strategy you're using to do the teaching um, is not producing good results, I think that broad definition can water down the success. So for instance, if you're, you know, not to be too hard on discovery-based um, approaches, um, but if you're doing discovery-based teaching of math and you have an end goal in mind and there's an incremental path to get there but yet you don't see as much success it might not be the formative instruction aspect of it it might be the strat the core strategy that you use um so that that's probably one one of the reasons why that might be showing an issue the other one is clearly i feel like having taught with formative instruction for so many years how you approach challenges once they arise, once you set your goals and have a goal in mind, can also determine how successful you're going to be. I find a lot of people that use um, formative instruction and set these goals in advance, they're very tempted, whether they are an inexperienced teacher or a very experienced teacher, they're very tempted, uh, tempted to, to afterwards, once challenges arise, to lower expectations. And we saw that when RTI was um, administered in our school when we worked together, that the teachers, most of the teachers really wanted to lower the expectations every time we assessed the data on the students. And uh, more so when they were working collectively. So I, I would say that if those are probably the two discrepancies. If you're getting 
if you're getting data coming from a too broad of a definition or not a very good way of executing formative instruction, that can be where the the the, the success of formative instruction kind of gets washed out. Yeah, I, I have some more information about this. Um, so I, I broke down the, all of my data into much more specific um, ways in a reference pool I created in um, the article and chapter on this. Um, and I, I think there's some very telling information in that. First off, I want to say there's only three studies that were looked at, which is a very low sample size. Um, and then there is a not an incredibly high p-value, but a higher than, I would say, average p-value within the context of education studies. So a lot of the p-values for studies that we looked at in education um, were very, very low, which means we can be um, reasonably confident in those results. So, for example, like explicit instruction has a p-value of 0 0.001, um, which means we can be very confident in it. Same as the use of heuristics. This has a p-value of 0.1. So the cutoff um, amount in statistics, is believe, I believe, is viewed as 0.5, meaning that if something has a p-value of 0.5, it's no longer seen as um, valuable statistical evidence because the, the range is too great for it to matter. The deviation is too too great for there to be any reasonable conclusions we can draw from the information. So we're not we're nowhere near 0.5, but we're definitely higher than the average within the education research, I, at least that I've looked at. Um, and you can see that in that the lowest um, study showed an impact size of 0.06, and the highest study showed an impact size of 0.48. So that, that's a decent range. Because um, obviously 0.06 is totally meaningless. Um, uh, also I, I think part of the problem is how the study was done. So the way they did the studies, um, was it was formative assessment coupled with optional targeted instruction, meaning that they would do a formative assessment and then tell the students, Hey, if you don't like your mark, I will give you some one-on-one -on -one help with this. Well, anytime we make an intervention optional, I think that's going to diminish the effect size by a pretty significant amount. Because you're, you're not looking at the effect size of individual students. You're looking at the effect size of the class. So if right. you measure that your class progress on something um, and your intervention is offering individual support on an optional basis, obviously you're not going to see as significant of an effect as if you had done something that was mandatory for the whole class. So I think that um, is why this result was so, so low personally. And I, I will say on a, a personal level, on a final basis, you can't do an action-based research framework without having formative assessment and instruction based off that assessment. So when we see that those are high yield strategies according to research, and that this is a required component of that, I would say that that shows that this is important, at least within the context of that intervention, that it can be a high yield intervention while being used properly. And one just sort of random final note I want to make is there were a couple of other interventions now that I'm looking at my, my data here where the effect sizes had a huge range. And I just wanted to point those out because we're nearing the end of the, the series on this podcast. We have one more episode to do, but um, it's just it's a it's a weird little coincidence. And I wanted to point it out. So scaffolded examples, for example, had nine studies in it. So that's fairly high. Um um, sample size with 0 0.01 p-value. But in their lowest study, uh, they reported an effect size of 0.12. Uh, 
And in the highest study, they reported an effect size of 2.15. So this is um, basically it showed that it could be an, uh, an intervention that has absolutely no effect or an effect that is just off the charts, um, which is kind of random. And another one that was really similar to that was manipulatives. Manipulatives had an effect size ranging from 0.31 to 1.39, meaning in one study it was a high yield strategy, and in another, strat another study it had a very average result. And I, I think these, these examples are just, they're not necessarily examples of reflective of where we should see either of these. It's important to have averages. It's, this is why we use meta-analysis so that we can get a more um, broad understanding of how something can be expected to be used or what our expected results might be. Um, but it shows it also, I think, within these particular ones that uh, a lot of this tends to do with the ability of the teacher to properly execute the intervention. That's that's what I think when I see a really large range of results. I think some teachers were able to implement this in a way that was so effective that it had really high results and other teachers could not. And, and this could be, but this is meaningful too in the sense that it says that it's not something you should automatically assume you should do. Because if you don't think you're the teacher that can make this a high yield strategy, maybe you shouldn't be the teacher trying to implement it. Right. Uh, and th that's, this is our sort of our, that was our last um, factor for this episode. Um, so I just want to ask Robert if he has any final thoughts for this episode. You know, I don't have any final thoughts about, about those strategies per se, but I will say that one of the other um, um, purposes that we have of this podcast is to just promote research in our profession in general because one of the things that we both noted before we even started this podcast was that there is you know quite a desert of research when it comes to research specifically about teaching um and i think that starts with the demand so we're i'm hoping and i'm i'm sure i can speak for joseph when i say we're hoping that by this podcast, we can, you know, do some contribution to promoting the demand for good quality research in the teaching profession. And once there's a good demand for it, I think that, you know, the money will follow that and we'll get a lot more research. And then a lot of the things, the discrepancies that we're talking about in this episode will become more um, clear. Um, we'll have better sample sizes for these these topics for these strategies and um that will affect the p-value in a lot of these meta-analyses because you know either the controls aren't being done right we're not getting enough really good research design or the, we're just not getting a big enough sample size for the for the significance to be bared out in the research so um yeah i think i'll just leave it at that that i hope through this podcast, we're promoting the demand for research, and I hope all the listeners, particularly the avid listeners, will also find ways of promoting, um, you know, the demand for research uh, in their daily lives. I think if a lot more teachers are telling their administrators and other um, colleagues the importance of good quality research, um, we'll get a lot better. You know, I, I will say on a, on a one last final note is sort of a thank you to our audience actually um we're not you know we're obviously not joe rogan <laughs> joe rogan yeah. recently 
uh, sold his podcast or the rights to put his podcast on Spotify for over a hundred million dollars, which by the way, is absolutely bananas. Um, um, and you know, we're always, our focus is always for the most part, what research strategies show significant impacts to teaching, um, or teaching results. And, you know, uh, there's, there's, uh, teaching strategies out there that, uh, research shows can double learning in the classroom. And, uh, I, I 100% believe that that's possible. You know, I, I saw a comment on John Hattie's website saying that we all know as teachers, that's not possible. I actually really think it is. And I think you and I both believe that and both have data in our own classrooms to suggest that we've seen it happen. And as much as like, I try my very best to be a good teacher for my students. If, if we can promote some of these ideas that increase, you know, learning in other people's classrooms, we might've already had a bigger impact in our teaching careers through this podcast on other students than we've ever had in our own classrooms. And that's, that's kind true. of, that's kind of a cool idea to me. And I, I really am thankful to our listeners for giving us that opportunity and, um, taking the time to listen to us. So we appreciate you. Um, and, uh, you know what, normally I, I put the all our promotions at the end of the episode. I'm not going to bother today because you know what, I'm feeling a little, I'm feeling some feels over, <laughs> um, uh, that's nice. All of our listeners. So, um, until next time, folks, bye for now. Bye.